Welcome to the second part of my conversation with Dominic Bacaba. In this episode, Dom talks about his personal relationship with the forest and his journey into conservation work, having learnt about wildlife from his grandmother and his chosen Batwa mother, and setting up his first conservation organisation at the age of 20. Dom talks about the brutal eviction of forest peoples, including that of his family. We discuss the need to decolonise conservation for the sake of biodiversity and to challenge racism towards black-led organisations. Listen in to hear about successes within community-based conservation work and Indigenous leadership, including reversing the decline of the Eastern Lowland Gorilla. Dom, tell us a, a little bit about um, your own connection to the forest and how you learnt about local wildlife. Yeah, that brings me back to my childhood. Mm. You know, uh, as I said, my parents and my communities were kicked out of this forest in the 70s when it became a national park. Mm. We didn't go far. Um, I was very, very young, I think between 23 years old, when my grandmother took me out of my parents because she wanted to live with me. So I stayed with her my whole life until she passed away in 2002, that I was actually um, 30 years older now. Mm. And I was mature now at that time. So she will take me into the forest and spend many hours a day there showing me the forest, showing me things, showing me where they lived in the forest. I know exactly where they lived. I know where some of my grandparents were buried there. Um, he showed me all of these things. She will ask me to climb up in a tree and uh, she goes, I don't know where. She comes back late and say, hey, go down, you go. Those kind of things. So she created this inside me and uh, as we were just at the edge of the forest, those animals were coming out of the forest and feeding on our crops. So seeing them, seeing them eating on our, our banana, our pumpkins, our sorghum, everything there. And so I think this developed something inside. I looked, seeing these animals from my childhood, mm. seeing the forest from my childhood, seeing how people were involved in conservation at that time. I think it created something in me, and um, I was only 20 years old when I created with other colleagues our first conservation organization here, uh, which I left in 2010 uh, to join Strong Roots, which I created in 2009. So I think I've been seeing this from my childhood until now. I lived there, I did the forest until 2006 when I moved to Bukavu in the city because it became more insecure where I was living and I had to live with my family to come here. Mm -hmm. But again, it's only 30 kilometers from here to the forest. So yeah. um, a week I go there like four or five days a week. And but still, I don't know, is, is that forest doesn't exist anymore. I think we will all die here. Mm -hmm. uh, look, I'm, I'm looking in the, in the Lake Kivu now because because the located between like he went to the big national park and it's um it's recorded that um uh, more than 49 percent of the water you know coming in the lake comes from the the Kahuzi Biega national park so if we lose that forest we're gonna lose the lake mm. and this lake is connected in the south with um river 
which will be also affected. So Tanganyika will be affected also in the south. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a complexity yeah. of um, yeah. and the living, functioning ecosystem which we cannot yeah. destroy. I was listening to you talk about your, your grandmother and just hearing how we as humans have that living, functioning ecosystem and learning all of this knowledge from her and, and needing to be in the forest in order to interact with nature, to, to learn about it. And then hearing the example of the the Batwa pygmies who have experienced a rupture in their relationship with the natural world and then losing that knowledge. You can really hear the importance of maintaining that connection with nature, but also maintaining um, the cultural knowledge, the cultural flow, uh, that there is a balance between humans, culture and nature. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think it was a shock for my grandmother to be kicked out of the forest. Mm. Tell us more it. about that. What what happened? You, you could feel it because I think uh, by coming in the forest, because I didn't see what she was going to do there. She didn't collect firewood. She didn't trap animals. But she would enjoy to spend like the whole day in the forest together, showing me different parts of animals, you know, showing me things I can eat in the forest, what I cannot eat, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of things, showing me trees which can provide me uh, with water if I was there and I need water and I didn't have water, those kind of things. I, at the end, I thought that by taking me, uh, I was the first boy of my family, my dad and my mom, taking me out of them and staying with her, probably she was preparing me to regain this forest and to be under community control and not as a governmental control. Mm. And um, she showed me so many things, told me so many things. Um, others were related to our culture, which I could probably, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> what she, she told me um, and what they were doing and what they could do if they were attacked, so kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she was not that very old, but uh, she was aged. And because they were kicked out uh, with other people, and including pygmies, and there is a pygmy. Um, she she's not my biological mom, but she's my mom because when my my grandmother was doing other things, this is a woman who was t- taking care of me, mm-hmm. and she's still alive now. And actually, when I'm uh, um, like bored or struggling here in Bukavu, I just drive to the village. I meet her. Her name is Mwabidiku. I meet her, I sit with her under a tree or something. We talk, she tells me things, she tells me stories. I feel better again and I come back to Bukavu. Yeah. I don't have the same connection with my own biological mom. But mm. with this pygmy woman, uh, I feel very, very much connected. And after my ma- my grandmother has passed away, she remained my mom and my grandmother. And I remember actually uh, herself breastfeeding with her, her son, her son, who is now the current pygmy village chief, uh, Mr. Tavuna Chizongo. He, he, he is the chief of the pygmy village of Yungulenam. And I consider him as my own brother. He considers me as his own brother. Mm. Except that the world has gave us different ways because then I could access education and he didn't access education. And I don't know why, why this world is so unjust, you know, just this way, but um, it happens that way. So Tavuna is an employee of the Kahuzubiga National Park today, but our mom, Mabidiku, is still alive and she's still taking care of 
mm. all of us and the other kids. So both Mabidi Queen, my grandmother and myself, we have this very, very strong connection with the forest. Uh, whatever happened when the pygmies came back into the forest last day in 2017, uh, myself and Mabidi Queen, everybody was angry and we looked for any solution we could find when she was at they got out of the forest. And uh, it's working now because we've come up with suggestions and uh, the pygmies are not in the forest now. Um, but uh, that involves us as stakeholders. We haven't um, actually done what we agreed to do for the pygmies who didn't have any indemnities when they were kicked out of the forest. So it's another matter of human rights. So so many things are mixed, not just cultural, but political as well, economical and so on. Yes. So the connection with the forest is, is huge. Yeah. It's really huge. It must have been devastating for your grandmother to, to be evicted. Can you tell us a bit about how that came to happen? Um, you know, when, when this happened, um, it wasn't a lot of people like today. Maybe we, we've never known how many they were at that time. Mm-hmm. People can try to find numbers, but um, there is no correct number, but uh, which is true that it was a few families kicked out of there. And today we are thousands of people. So the park actually was first created in 1937 as um, a forest reserve. Mm-hmm. And it gained only the status of a national park in 1970. And before that, people lived there and there was no problem. And once they were evicted, um, the people who were involved in the process, they came to the people and told them in the forest that this has become a national park and there is a big war which is coming. It's going to kill people. So you have to get out of this forest and go where other people are living outside the forest. So if there is any problem, you can be protected there. But in the forest, it's very, very dangerous, so you shouldn't be here. But you will still be coming here and exploit and take anything you can take. And that's how the people left the times, villagers, and they went out of that. And when they went out of that, they were said that they cannot go inside anymore. They'll be arrested. Some were arrested because when I was game, coming back with my grandmother in the forest so secretly, so she couldn't be, they, the park rangers uh, didn't know and they shouldn't know because we could be arrested or shot, those kind of things. So mm-hmm. we were actually going there secretly and staying there. So it was actually a lie. Uh, yeah. The people who were caught there were arrested or shot. Or, and then people were afraid to come back. Mm. And that's how this was maintained. They used force, they used guns, they used everything they could to ensure that they, um, you know, <laughs> refused people to come back mm. in the forest. So there was a deceit in saying the war is coming and the forests will be unsafe. You need to move out into more populated areas. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that was a lie from a Belgian who was managing the park at that time. Mm. It, it's, in part, it's shocking to hear that, but it also it's not shocking um, 
just knowing the history of of the West in in the Congo, there's still a level of shock for the level of disregard for the people that live in the Congo Basin, as if they're superfluous or they're collateral, that they they just don't matter. Yes, um, you know, this region, uh, during the colonial period, people have suffered a lot here. When my grandmother told me stories on how the Western people treated them, just after the slavery period, Mm. but the colonial period was also very, very hard for our grandparents. They were beaten every day. They couldn't have nothing. At, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to remember that because really, really not good. Yeah. And uh, I think to build a peace period now, we have to forget that. And we have to say, I think the um, young Belgians today, they are open and want to work with other people and Congolese without imposing these colonial systems, which were very, very hard, mm. uh, violated and abused human rights of people here. Some were killed, beaten, imprisoned, those kind of things. Mm. I think uh, Congolese people are very resilient. I think they are ready to build a new world, um, a new Congo, based on human rights and uh, respect. And uh, the government is still very poor with corrupt governors and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's possible to change this. I cannot put the whole responsibility to the West and all the... I don't want to go through the politics, but uh, um, there is something. We we don't eat minerals here. They go somewhere. And people have died, more than 6 million, just to exploit a few tons of minerals. They had to kill people here. So we are talking about colonialism and slavery. It's still going on in other ways. There's been a metamorphosis, but it hasn't disappeared. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's still going on, actually. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of work being done around the need to decolonise uh, conservation. And obviously, the, the history of how the West treated people in the Congo Basin. I, I think it's mandatory. Mm. If we continue colonising conservation, imagine if we lose the Congo Basin forest, we all be affected. Congolese forest is Central African forest. If if this forest doesn't exist anymore, we'll all be affected. Yeah. And this this is time for my fellows from the West to understand that the colonial conservation model failed totally, didn't work. We have to look at other models which can give a chance, a hope for this rich biodiversity to survive. Not just for us, it's for, it's for the global interest. This time to understand it. We cannot continue in something which has failed. We have to, to, to change and, and look at other things. I understand that and I agree that they don't understand local communities. They don't understand indigenous people. We do. We can partner with them and assure us that everything is doing correctly. Do you find that Western NGOs do approach you for partnership? Do they um, look to you for your expertise and, and knowledge? I consider conservation like politics. Mm-hmm. And partnership is, again, you gain. You know, Partnerships, they are also complicated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because it says that, you know, if you are given something, your hand will be on top of the hand of the, hand of the person who is receiving from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's meaningful. Um, so, but in partnership, normally it should be clear, it should be transparent, it should be, it should be, it should be, and 
sometimes it's not that. It's not the case. We have a saying in in, in French. Um, uh, I can translate that in French actually, but in English it should mean something like, "I give you an egg, uh, I get a cow." Mm-hmm. So because in French, um, an egg is f, and the cow is beef. Mm-hmm. So I, I give you an f, I get beef. You know, yeah. kind of thing. So. Um, it's like that. That's the kind of partnership we mm. we have. It's not like um, transparent or there is no equity in those partnerships and whatever. Mm. I see the partnership of big organization with my government or with um, the uh, ICCN, which is the world is the Congolese Wildlife Authority. Those partnerships are 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 not working. Mm. And when they protect themselves and expand themselves, they say. All Congolese are corrupt. All those institutions, they don't have capacities, they are corrupt and so on. Maybe yes, but maybe not. Mm. You know, it's always on the other part where uh, it's failed because, no, because it's not transparent, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not good. Yeah. In the UK, yeah. we have a, a challenge being a black-led organisation in forming partnerships which aren't exploitative. It's very typical that larger white middle-class organisations get funding to work with people of colour, but then don't have the contacts or the engagement to get diverse participation within their programmes. So they'll come to us but they want us to work yeah. for free. They minimise our knowledge and our expertise in engaging these audiences. So they're often very one-sided or they're incredibly competitive with us uh, that they want to own and control the issue around the involvement of, of people of colour rather than to um, working alongside us or, or supporting us in, in the work that we're doing. I'm wondering if you're finding something similar in terms of Western organizations almost fearing a black leadership or an indigenous-led program? I think it's common. Uh, it's common. And um, I I can say it's a, a Western manner of looking at things, but I think it's a human manner because I can see how people from the city of Bukavu consider the people of my village in Chomba, for example, around mm-hmm. the forest, the forest. These are uh, uh, villagers. These are not civilized people, those kind of things. I think we do that. They're bound to do the same to pygmies. And I think the white people do that to black people and so on. Yeah, of course, it's a big mistake. And uh, coming back to the organizations being led by black people and those led by big organizations. Um, I agree with you, there is a, a kind of racism. I don't know if that's the word I should use, but uh, uh, not respecting that because I think the only one reason is that the money comes from the Western people mm-hmm. and is supposed to be used by the black people. But I know in in some circumstances where uh, money came from black people to help Western people. Anyway, um, I personally haven't been victim of uh, those kind of behavior, but I know it has happened in many fields and many areas for other organizations where, for example, because they are black people or, you know, they are considered like not having capacities. Mm. 
I've worked for a big organization here uh, during the evaluation. It's my, <laughs> the landscape I'm managing, I was the first. Well managed, everything well done. Okay. And when I come from that big organization, coming to my, uh, my organization, which I consider as a local organization, I always want to hear people saying, oh, that organization doesn't have capacities, you know, because these are the people who are working for these big organizations, who are working with those Western people working for these big organizations and making the progress. They are local people who are doing this. And saying that local people don't have capacities, for me, if I don't have capacities in one domain, I have capacities in another domain, Mm. and I don't see... Uh, one coming from London or from Brussels or from Paris coming here and saying he or she knows everything. Yes, yes. They also yes, learn yes. from everybody and so on. I think it's a matter of, uh, of, uh, of human ego in people, um, which doesn't help. Actually, the work we are doing, it cannot help. It will never help. Mm. It's only diminish our respect, our capacities. I've never been victim of that, but I know it exists. Mm. There does seem to be um, an over-reliance on the excuse um, around black people as having an incompetence or, as you're saying, moving the goalposts around having to know everything about everything when in reality nobody does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the case. Yeah, it's the case. And and I think uh, it's not a good way of looking at things. Uh, we should work in a complementary manner and not think that there is someone who is higher than another one and so on. I understand that technology has evolved then, but even technology it will need some human capacities. And uh, I, I think, I, I don't care if someone said, you don't have capacities, you don't know how to manage things. I just laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I would just laugh and say, okay, I understand it's okay, because I know both sides, actually. Yes. Yeah. Dom, let's come back to gorillas, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you feel is going well in the work you're doing and, and to talk about successes that you're having. Actually, uh, as I said it before, having people to give 3,000 square kilometers of their traditional land mm. to say, please help us to manage this in a conservation way and assure us that we can have more gorillas, more elephants, more chimpanzees here and so on. For me, that's huge. Yeah. They didn't expect having money from the World Bank or from, they just say, we want to preserve this because if it's preserved, our species will come back again. Mm. And it will be our pride to say we've saved something which was at the edge of, of extension. Mm. That's a big success. Yeah. I'm also struggling to have some ways of really supporting them to do this and working with the government of DRC to give them a title of this area as the community-based conserved area. I think we're going to reach that level then I'd say I've done something for my community. Yeah. For now, I'm happy with my team here at Songhoods. They are working hard to ensure that we can attain our objectives. And also, you know, for me, an important person is not the very smart person, not the intelligent person. 
It's a person who will also have some social capacities. Yeah. Who knows how to live with others? Who knows when things are going well and they are not going well? Who knows how to live with these people in the villages who don't have anything to rely on except their lands and forests and so on? Yeah. So if you you misrespect to those people, for me, it's just killing me. Yeah, you know? I can yeah. hear that Bantu culture of the importance of, of how we treat each other and that includes humans and, and nature. That's more important than one million pounds. Mm. And it really emphasizes yes. the generosity of the chiefs yes. in sharing their land for this, this park and this program because it, it's everything. It's their lifeblood. It's not simply money. It, it's so much more. No. I mean, for them, as I said before, your cultural values are far away more expensive than anything else in this world. Mm. Mm. So the way you treat your fellows, the way you look at your friends, the way you assist your your relatives, the way the way you live with someone else is more important than anything else. Yeah. So if you say to someone, good morning, it's more than if you give him 100 pounds, but you are not respectful to people. Mm-hmm. People will say, no, we don't want this. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, can you eat here? No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I've eaten already. But this person doesn't want it because this other person is not respectful in the society. Mm-hmm. Culture is very important. So I think uh, based on those kind of things and based on the knowledge of the information that is going throughout the communities, understanding that we have to unite our efforts to reverse the equation of gorillas' decline, I think that's the biggest success we've had so far yeah. because everybody is aware of the problem and looking for any contributions they can provide to make the solution. Yeah, it's extraordinary work that you're you're doing, Dom. And in, in some respects, it, it feels self-evident and obvious that you would include Indigenous communities. But I understand that within the Western model, um, that's something that's been exclusive. And I imagine there's been a huge amount of work just to bring back in that common sense of people are part of nature and they need to be involved in sustaining what have been their ancestral lands. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. No, thank you very much for accepting me to share this. My pleasure. If people are interested in learning more or doing something to help contribute to your program, is there something they can do or, or something they can look at? No problem. Um, we have a website. It hasn't been updated for years, but uh, it's there and our contact is there at any time. And if there is any details which is required or needed, we'll be happy to provide that. Great. And the website is? Um, it's actually strongrootscongo.org. That's lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Dom. Great. Thank you very much and I wish you a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Black Nature Narratives. Check back soon for new episodes. If you're in the UK and want to be part of a community of people of colour gathering in nature in real life, sign up to wildinacity.org.uk for updates, events and membership. To support this podcast, visit our Patreon page or the link below.